0: All right, Ben Taylor, welcome to the pod,
1: my friend. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm great. I mean, our basketball season's over, so I'm just in. It's like uh, the summer of. Did you ever watch Seinfeld? It's like the summer of George. That's what yeah. my life.
0: <laughs> yeah, I watched like. a lot of Seinfeld. I'm an official old. Okay, I'm an official old, so I know about Seinfeld. Um, it's weird when you have like cultural. Okay, you want to talk about Seinfeld? So I, when I went to college, <laughs> when I went to college. And again, dating myself here, it was like during the heyday of the Thursday night, I guess it was friends and then Seinfeld sort of was afterwards, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then in the dormitory, there was one main area downstairs where there was like a pool table and a TV and this and that. And I was amongst the contingent of the, the basketball fans, uh, but mostly basketball. That was mostly my, my thing growing up. And we would be trying to watch something, watch something else. And then the hordes would come down. And we tried to battle them for a few weeks to not give up access to this TV. Because some people had TVs in their room. Some people didn't. You know, this is like early, what's this email thing? Sort of thing, thing going on. Again, dating myself uh, severely here. Um, and I tried to fight them off for the longest time, but I mean I think this is probably that's probably like the last time there was this cultural everyone tuning in at a particular time to watch a particular show.
1: Yeah, maybe outside of live sports. I mean, maybe that's the right. compelling yeah. part of of what live sports have. And some HBO series. They've managed to like cultivate that a little bit, I think, with the Sunday night time slot, which I've I've tried to get into more in the last couple of years. I like to binge watch things. I don't like to wait. Um, one I like to get in the flow of the show but two honestly Kevin I I just forget what happens the week before (laughs) I'm like and they have those little recaps at the beginning and it does like a good job but two minutes into the episode I'm like wait why is who's this person why is he asking about this anyway this is this show has gotten off to a great start you're talking about basketball I'm here to talk about have you warned your listeners that I can't talk about football before two thousand sixteen? I have I uh, can't even name That's Nothing
0: nothing important has happened other than Patrick Mahomes uh, since then. So we I've don't seen really him. have to Yeah. <laughs> I have <laughs> seen him I have a to trust me. They would rather hear about uh, you know, Game of Thrones and how to avoid spoilers on on the Sunday night television. Succession, never seen succession. So you're you're watching the succession, I assume then. I've seen the succession, yeah. Yeah. I've okay. seen I I, I I saw a couple of clips and I was like, I don't know. I guess you know, having a show full of characters that you that you don't like, like none of them are likable, is now the new formula. I, I guess in some. Way. This
1: is the brilliance of this show. They somehow get you. The first the first few episodes did not work for me, and then I had to change my mindset. And I said, "This is this is satire," and it is what Arrested Development would be today. If they had to make Arrested Development, it's this show. It's more it's more serious. But if you actually read every line. Every every single line delivered in that show, I think, might be comedic genius when you when you view it that way. So that's how I get into the show. But no, I can't I can't watch those programs and then wait. I, Kevin, when I wait a whole year for the next season, I don't even remember the names of the characters. Um, so I wait until the end. I did not watch Succession until season four was live rolling, and then I catch up. I did the same thing with Game of Thrones. I'll probably do that with
0: the next show. Um, what are we going to talk about today? I don't know. I don't know. What are we going to talk about? Okay, so we'll we'll, we'll talk mostly basketball here. I'll quiz you on some. I came some, here to talk about football. We're talking some about NFL basketball stuff here. Well, you 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 invite me on on your podcast, and then you're also a solo podcaster, which I appreciate. And then eventually gave up. So you gave up. Yes. The... <laughs>
1: well, okay. To be fair, to be fair, um, one of the hardest things we do so much work that never like makes it to the light of day. That I realized having pods that just riff off the work we're doing i mean you make a 10 minute video and undoubtedly like six really fun things get cut a bunch of ideas don't get into it you're scouting all these other things so i realized like solo podcasting in that manner is almost impossible um so i didn't actually intend to completely give up solo podcasting it just happened organically because now i'm like
0: why why solo podcast when you can have other people to talk to it's much easier yeah i'm only doing a little bit of q a on the pod you know what i was using the podcast for the solo podcast too much in the past is that I was like too lazy to write things up, which is a clearly superior format to putting out information than when it's delivered in a solo sort of uh podcast. So I would, you know, talk about what happened during the week and these advanced stats and other stuff. I was like, I should really just be writing this up. So I'm trying to like replace a lot of that and write things up for, for, for posterity's sake, of course, which will be referenced, you know, generations into the future. No one can read anymore. It's, <laughs> it's a lost, that's a lost art. That's um, why I like to put a lot of visuals. So then you don't have to read every, you know, every, every, everything is worth like a thousand words, basically. All right. Let me, let me throw an idea at you. I've said
1: this on many podcasts before, probably I work in basketball. Basketball to me sits at the most interesting intersection of how to use data because there's a lot of stuff going on we measure a decent number of things it's not one-on-one there's 10 players on the court which is a lot but it's not too many so it kind of sits in this middle space of like analytics can help us data can help us quite a bit but they can't really tell us everything and the idea of like solving the sports oh this player is worth this many points and this player is worth that many points it's still very difficult A sport like baseball, which, of course, Bill James and everything started, I think, the sort of popularity and revolution of using all this. Baseball has this feel of like, okay, there's very many discrete events that I can be very confident about. And it sits on one end of the spectrum. And football, apologies to hockey and soccer and other big sports. Those are the three I'm using right now. Um, Football sits at this other end where you're just like, all right, I'm watching football and there's like well I'm sorry there's what there's like 60 plays a game and there's 16 whole games in the season and like one quarter of the time you're in prevent and another quarter of the time you're in jumbo at the one time you're looking for 2 yards and another time you're looking for 17 yards there are special teams plays like it it seems uh seems like it's on the other end of the spectrum of how can we use data to really figure out what's going on and make informed decisions. And then at the end of the day, I mean, when you get into like, who's the, who's the best quarterback of all time? um, I don't know. That's,
0: it seems much harder in football. It seems much fuzzier. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Well, actually this is probably part of the kind of macro points that I would want to talk to you about with your work. I mean, the work that you do, I would say maybe like Zach Lowe's type of work there where, It's like a smart, informed, almost, for him more than you, although him also, it's almost like an intuition about these different types of, because analytics is not like, it's not, it has to be a total number sort of thing. Most of it is just knowing how not to overreact to certain things, how to appreciate during certain sample sizes, how to have this kind of worldview of things. So when you have that, I think you combine that much easier with the type of film work that you guys are doing because, I mean, the broadcast copy has everyone on there. The concepts are, I mean, it could be somewhat opaque what teams are doing, but it's really kind of just all out there for us to see if you really want to see it. Whereas in the NFL, which I think it can bring value to numbers. It can also make, it makes, it makes the numbers, but it makes numbers type analysis less valuable as a standalone, but it may make it more valuable in contrast to what, teams are doing with film because when you have people who are informed not inside the the locker room you know drawing up the actual plays but people who understand football they'll have like three different opinions about what's going on on a particular play where i don't think it's that same range of overconfident educated guessing going on than there is in football so in some ways like you can build a more complete picture there um through the NBA and then what you're doing with the NFL. And I, I think that makes total sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, just based on what you said, the fact that they stop every play in football and have a private secret meeting about what everyone is going to do <laughs> and then start up another play, right? It makes analyzing those plays incredibly difficult. And then you hear about these anecdotes. You hear about like, I don't know how famous it is amongst your listenership, but you know, you hear about like Ed Reed talking about tricking peyton manning have you seen this yeah yeah that's the
0: one where he kind of like peels
1: out and and twists back to the outside yeah Yeah. so he he claims and ed reed is absolutely amazing i have heard uh belichick and brady gush in documentaries over some of the things that he's done he claims that they he knew they were gonna play indianapolis in a few weeks and manning it might even it's i think it's an out route um right he's like oh they like to run this play with marvin harrison or reggie wayne or whoever it was back then once again all my references will be from the the aughts and the 90s and luckily
0: for you we have marvin harrison jr who will be in the nfl soon enough so are you being serious (laughs) he's gonna be the number one uh receiver taken next year i think i think he's ready to come out so yeah okay I'm
1: okay with that. I'm okay with that. Watching everyone's kids get drafted into the NBA <laughs> is a thing I'm already
0: experiencing. Athletic
1: genes help. Genes yeah.
0: help to get into get into pro sports.
1: But. Uh, it turns out they they make a di- and and having you know uh, parents with experience in the sport and money and resources and all that. Anyway, um, so the idea here is that Reed says Manning likes to run this route. I can't remember if he if he thought he tipped it in any way, but he claims he deliberately plays the coverages differently in the previous weeks against receivers to make it look like he will bite on this tell. I think think he basically thought Manning had a pump fake tell. Um, And so because of the nature of the out route and where Reed is positioned as a safety, he bites on the pump fake, pretends to go one way, pretends to bite, and then flies over the other way and intercepts it. Now, to your point about the all 22 film and like what you see on a broadcast and things like that in basketball we get to see the whole play it's a flowing play we don't have these crazy like stoppages between every possession in the old days we didn't have that the camera was like a little too zoomed in and you couldn't always see everything on the court but when you're watching that play live i might have actually watched that game live it just looks like manning throws it to nowhere right to ed reed that's the broadcast you're like why would he do that on the broadcast so it's very easy i think to come up with interpretations of that without seeing the the full picture of the field without understanding the history of the route of like that was the worst pass peyton manning has ever thrown why did he throw it right to ed reed when the reality is if you buy the whole story that like that's one of the smartest, most brilliant sort of chess matches you probably can have between a high level defender and a high level quarterback.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Reed is a good example of someone who just blows up any attempt to try to use um your knowledge about what's going on. I remember I think it was Dominique Foxworth talked about when he eventually uh, was playing for the couple of the players. I believe he played with with Reed also, that it was kind of like, okay, here's the play, here's the design but ed reed is just gonna do what ed reed does okay so he like there's there's he's supposed to do something and the coaches know that like he's generally supposed to do something but he's just gonna do what he wants to do what he feels like is the right thing to do on this play use his instincts and you as a player have that in mind that he might be doing something completely different than what you think he's going to do and That's also when it comes to the NFL. It's like not only do you have, like, you don't know what the play is, but within these plays, now there are choices that the the players are designated with. Of course, the quarterback can choose who to throw the ball, but now it's very common that on the defensive side, there are choices that are decided on whether or not, you know, like zone, not only zone coverage, but you're mixing and matching what's going on there. Receivers have option routes where they're going one way depending upon one coverage or going one way depending upon another coverage. So yeah, the funniest thing for me, and what I like to sit back with the popcorn in, in is when people are talking about a particular play and then these former players would be contradicting each other on what is actually happening, and then you start to realize, and you're yelling at me as if I don't know what's going on. Look at yeah. these guys are like pro bowlers who don't know what's going on.
1: Yeah, uh, no that that's where I see certain similarities with with basketball. Um, one of the kicks I've been on in the last couple of years is the use of zone defense in basketball, and even so, so zone was not allowed in basketball for decades and then they allowed it again but no one really used it a lot in the nba and now you're starting to see slightly more complex applications and maybe more importantly within like a traditional man-to-man defense in basketball where everyone is marking someone one-to-one there are always moments in the possession where like one or two players zone up two or three other players or the ball's on one side of the court and they say okay, these two guys are gonna be responsible for everything that happens over here. So you have this like hybrid zone, read and react thing going on on defense. On offense, because it's a very flow-driven sport, you have those kinds of offensive concepts that you just talked about where it's like, you wanna read what's happening on the floor, and depending on how the defense is playing it one way, you may cut the other way. A screen is set over here, I can use the screen and go left, I can use screen and go right, or I can flip the screen, the screener in this case, analogous, maybe to a blocker or something on the offensive line. Like he can change the angle to help react to how the defense is playing. So the sort of convergence of like a ton of zone read react concepts that empower players. um, That's something that's really interesting to me to see across sports. I think soccer has had a lot of that as well. And the other big thing, just while I'm on this is rant here. Uh, Spacing, just the use of spacing has been revolutionary in basketball, but I think you've also seen it in football, where trying to remember what season it was. I want to say off the top of my head, like 2009, I um, went to a bar to watch opening day of the nfl on a sunday um and and you're sitting around and everyone's doing you know everyone's drinking the beer at the local watering hole and they're they got their jerseys
0: they're like ah i love the beer yes (laughs) the the beer yes
1: yes (laughs) what that's what they drink when they watch football right they eat the wings and they they drink the beer um and i i think it was the patriots game they played the jets and the jets fan behind me uh could not stop talking about how they had a street ball offense that was going nowhere. They're like, this is just flag football. What is up with these four wide receivers and empty backfields? And he's in shotgun every time you can't be in shotgun every time. It's not a serious offense. Yeah, no, but just thinking about like, you know, Texas tech, Mike Leach, the spread, so-called spread offense, and just the proliferation of these ideas across sports has been really interesting to me to see where you have, read and react optionality in the offense and then how much space can we use because it turns out in sports where humans can run and cut the more space we have the harder it is to defend this is not what we were going to talk about today but i'm just no no we're going but all i over. do think it's
0: interesting Let's i mean it, it hasn't become like it hasn't become a, a basketball type of offense in the nfl clearly as we talked about because of how well everything is diagrammed but players are more empowered than they were in the past and i think that also hints to some of the difference because I've been watching a lot of soccer recently. And I think it's the same as basketball, but like, you could trade for someone. They could just come in. The coach could maybe not even have talked to them before, And they could just be like, okay, just go out there and like, just go out there and do something like you'll kind of get it. You get it. Right. (laughs) It's like, like, I don't have to explain everything to you. Like, you know, there'll be some things you're not going to get, but you can kind of get it, which is the same as soccer. Whereas in the, in the NFL, other than maybe a running back, you just hand the ball to, and they know to run away from people who are trying to tackle them. you, You can't really do that in the same sort of way. So yeah, I mean that that's part of it, but I think sample is also like the huge thing. And you, you hinted on that a little bit on what you're doing there. So maybe we got to back up for a second here. So let's, let's wait. Okay. We, we we really got off the rails. And I know you're you're I should have known that going in. I did. This, that we I did that we needed guardrails. Yes, that I'm we sorry. Need, <laughs> we did need, we need guardrails because I need guardrails. You need guardrails a little bit. Maybe that's why we like the solo podcast, because then we can just, go, we just right, go where we want.
1: There's no one there to tell us we can't just talk about whatever we want for one very long <laughs> sentence. OK,
0: bring us back in. So let's start. OK, let's let's rewind all the way back here um this is my guest ben ben taylor here thinking basketball five i just looked at this five hundred and sixteen thousand subscribers i remember back when you were a young little pup there just starting <laughs> off that 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 subscription everything else go why don't we why don't we rewind back to how you got into even looking at the nba in this sort of manner um and then we could kind of build up towards towards maybe some of these other concepts that we're talking about here
1: well i think it's part and parcel with everything we've been rambling about for the last 15 minutes or whatever basically the way I always watch basketball no matter how much data you use the the game in front of you the context of the film the things the players are doing that's everything um and in fact if it's not worth stating I mean I've said this a million times I'll say it again most of stats are just measurements they're just counting up the things that you know are important From watching the game. How do you know it's important? Because you have a contextual understanding of the sport. If you ask someone who had never seen a football game to come in and chart some really healthy stats to figure out who the best players are, they probably couldn't do a very good job of that. Um who knows what they would land on that might be an interesting experiment to run one day would they land on t- the player who scored the most touchdowns would they even know what a touchdown is they would just the last player who had the ball when they ran into the end zone before they do the dance yeah uh, do, do they still do dances is that outlawed
0: no i think that's back right I, I, yeah it's it's back it's back i hope so
1: boy um so that's basically the the short of it is that the 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 film side or just watching the game had always been something I had done in conjunction with stats. And, and um, you know, the idea of like, should we make a podcast or should we write something down? Should we make a video or should we write something down? Every time I wrote something down, I, I couldn't actually point to the play on the court that I was talking about. So I'd always wanted to do more film. So I just started pointing to more plays on the court. Uh, and there are some cool people who do the same thing in, in the football space as well. And I think it's, it really... It really pops when you can get to slow something down, put it under a microscope, and say uh, a big one for me again. again all my old references: the uh, the Giants' sort of pass rush defensive line blitzing scheme that Bill Barnwell outlined in the what 2012 Super Bowl, the second time they beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Like just seeing the pictures and the clips you go, oh my, okay, that makes sense. That that does something to me.
0: Just writing it in words, you lose that a little. Well, okay, let's, so how much of, when you're watching something, is it diagnosing what may be missing in some type of metric that you would look at? Obviously, there's lots of things maybe missing in what metrics other people's may, maybe look at. And how much of it is saying, I'm looking at some, sort of i don't know what it may be some sort of on off stat some sort of defensive stat and then i'm realizing wow this is like not this this player is pretty impactful let me go and look and try to figure out what may be going on that i'm missing is this correct or not you know what how does how does that whole process work cuz i cuz with the film side i do think there's a lot of good film analysis in the nfl and i do think there can also be poor film film analysis in the nfl where the conclusions don't align with the data. And I guess my, my, intel, my analytical instincts tell me that it's probably overconfident when people are doing that. And they're saying, no, 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 trust me. Look at these four plays. You know. And I'm just saying, that's, that's great. Um, maybe those four plays are doing what you're telling you, are saying what you're, what you're saying. But I, I remain less convinced, I guess, than when we have the things coming together in a, in a logic, kind of like cohesive manner.
1: Yeah. Okay. So if I'm following what you're getting at, it's both for me. Sometimes I see someone with just some great sort of statistical number at a high level in basketball, it might be on off or some we have all these one number metrics that try to summarize your value. And you go, huh, that's interesting. I didn't Think of that player as being really good, but also I haven't really closely watched that player. I haven't put them under a microscope. And so from there, that can guide you to take a deeper look and try to deconstruct what's happening. And in my experience, sometimes you see things and you go, oh, this guy's actually pretty good. Um, He does this well. This is something that might not be tracked by the traditional box score, so is undervaluing him. He's really good at this within his team context, so he might be really valuable to his team. Sometimes you get that. Sometimes you go look under the hood and you kind of end up with the opposite conclusion. You go, oh, okay, my original intuition that the reason why no one's talking about this player is because he's not doing a lot of things super well. And now I'm grading against the statistics community. Now the analytics guys are going to come after me because he looks really good by these top numbers. But
0: I'm looking at most vicious.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at everything and I'm like, you know what? There might be noise and there might be another thing that can happen is team context in basketball because there's only five players on the court. If you have like the worst backup, some some positions, they don't even have a backup. They're like, we just have the point guard. And then we're going to have someone else attempt to play point guard where you go to the bench. And so you get, you do get these situations where you have a player who becomes a kind of analytics darling in the community, but when you go under the hood, you're like, I think if he changed teams, I think if something else happened here, you would not see the same analytics numbers because there's a little bit of luck. There's a little bit of team context and he, and in different situations, he doesn't actually do things well enough to make a huge impact. So I think, I think it goes both ways. Um, the other side of the process question for me is, is a lot of times I'm watching stuff, understanding what's already been tracked. So take, take shooting in basketball as a really simple example. I don't need to worry about having my brain calculate how many threes Steph Curry made out of 500 attempts. So what I'm interested in is how does he get into the attempts? How do teams take away the attempts? And in his case, there's some very interesting stuff with what happens downstream on the other side of the court because defenses are so worried about his shooting. That's what you get on film that isn't measured in the stats. When you go to the box score at the end of the day, you see Steph. You see who's the best three-point shooter ever by percentage. And you look it up, and it's like Seth Curry, his brother. <laughs> and then Steph Curry is a little bit down the list. And so like, you could scratch your head, And from a naive perspective, you could go, okay, so they're the same. They're three-point shooting percentage. They're both really good. They both take a lot of threes. They must have the same impact on the game. And it's like, well, one, that leaves everything else aside. But two, even when you watch the way they shoot threes, that's something you need to go to the film at a very basic level just to see, okay, they're not getting into the threes The same way, they shoot them from different spots on the court. One shoots them off the dribble more. Um, That would be Steph. He shoots them off the dribble more than his brother, and so on and so forth. So to me, that's part of the process of understanding what stats are being measured and understanding what things around those stats I need to kind of fill in, in addition to just tracking things that, you know, have never been tracked before.
0: Okay, so if you had the ability to... Just layer in. Let, let's say if there's a misdiagnosis based upon some sort of catch-all, you know, statistical number. Let's say you had, you know, whatever uh, AI. You got AI now. D- data over. from <laughs> Star Trek. Is, yeah, is he take, allowed to yeah. take it over? Um, and you're able to build like, could you actually layer in enough contextual data, data into this? to make that determination to really like improve what a purely analytics person is doing, or is there no reasonable substitute for going ahead and watching? And even if you are going to go ahead and watch, you have to have some talk about guardrails. You have to have some guardrails on yourself of of making sure that you're kind of like tracking what you're watching in some sort of way, or else you won't be able to, to aggregate and weigh and figure out everything there. So so like, could you build, if you could put your brain, let's say, Let's say Chat GPT is doing all your writing and your and your vocals for your podcast, and then now also your brain has been taken over by AI could, could could you just have a formulaic way of looking at this? I mean, you' talk about like off of the dribble. hey, that's something you could just put into just put into a model, right?
1: Yeah, no, I mean Chat GPT doesn't I don't think knows where he is half the time um, or <laughs> she or it. Uh, but you know, I think in theory, if you had the if you had the computing power. And we had computers that were smart enough. If you got all the same inputs I got, I think you could drastically outperform the humans just because basketball is such a sport with so much variability, such large samples. We're counting thousands and thousands of shots. And we're so prone. This is what I wrote Thinking Basketball, the book about originally. We're so prone to just getting stuck in these narratives that come along to try to simplify everything for us. I mean, the way people talk about a basketball game They talk about one or two plays at the end of the game when there were like 200 possessions in the game with a ton of actions taking place. And at the end of that game, Kevin, each team had scored 100 points. And at the end of the game, if one guy makes a shot or misses a shot, it will completely change how everyone talks about the entire game. And more importantly to your question, how they talked about how the players in that game played, like making the final shot, in basketball because of the sample, because of the complexity, because of the variability, changes people's minds about how that player played retroactively. They're not really sure how he played until the end. And then if the shot goes in, let me tell you the 11 great things he did to swing the game for his team. If the other team makes the shot, I got to tell you why this star really choked and look at we're going to put all the nine things he did wrong under the microscope. Look at this turnover right here. What's he what's he doing at passing it to the other team? For no reason. So, um, I do think if we had the ability, in theory, we could. I also think we're a long way off, not just because of ChatGPT and and AI modeling and things like that, but because think about all the inputs we've already talked about. Inputs like prior games, understanding what a scheme is, understanding what the coaches want to do, understanding players' tendencies. Um, There's so many things happening if we need like camera tracking data not just to show us where the ball is and whether it goes in and who touched it last that's great but where's your head looking what happened on the last play and how is a player weighing that as a variable and adding all of those things up that some of which i probably can't even think of right now because it's a very exhaustive list i think that's how you'd have to do it
0: okay let's let's look at the flip side you you mentioned a little bit in the like what the I watch games, you know, Game Watcher, the Game Watcher community, that, the, the eye that, test, the the eye test, yeah. The eye test, yeah. exactly. So, winning or losing, that's good. That that's that's obviously part of it uh like ball goes in versus ball doesn't go in you know that's that's got to be a pretty big one there Huge Uh, on ball versus off ball value that's being added what what else am i am i missing here and how would you weigh these different components no those those are big yeah those are
1: big ones i think the last so did the team win are you watching the ball um shot making and shot variability and then i think the last big one is box score watching so, whatever's in the box score, and traditionally in basketball, it's like points, rebounds, and assists. You go look at that. Maybe you look up field goal percentage and you go, okay, you had a great game 30 points and uh, 60% from the field. Great game. So, it's that kind of like soup. Some combination of that is used to pull and, and simplify the game. And even the iTest crowd, the iTest crowd, I think. I think it's this way probably in most sports, but certainly in basketball, they still rely on these stats, right? They're just only using a few. They're like, no, I don't like using stats, but the score of the game is very important and the number of points and the shots made and missed is very important. So um, again, it's just another example of how intertwined these these two ideas are, I think.
0: I mean, do you think the NBA has also become and you you did a you did a video about how um, uh, the new big man and being big isn't enough anymore. Like there has been a little bit of a decoupling between, let's say, like our instinctual idea of like a like a good basketball player, which is let's say you're, you're like playing you know two on two out someplace and like the guy who just can't be stopped, right? He who has who has the ball versus someone who adds value in these other different ways. Um, has that also like muddied people's opinions when they I don't know, even if they think of someone like Steph Curry Steph has had a bit of a, a bounce back from from a strange, dark period where people were viewing him uh, with some some failures there for with the Warriors, um, you know, but they look at Steph and they're going to look at LeBron. And they're going to say, well, obviously, you know. Not if the LeBron isn't better than the stuff, anyway. But you know what I mean. It's like, oh, obviously that's the basketball player that we're talking about here. And I mean, is it fair to look at things that way? And maybe if it isn't, even their value on the actual NBA game to give a little extra credit for the guys who you just like think embody like basketball player a bit more.
1: I think that's the the ball watching thing you mentioned, where yeah. the the other sort of well, the end point, let's say, of ball watching is you reduce the game to a one on one game or a two-on-two game in the park. So there is sort of a community that thinks, you know, um, the best player is the guy who, if you roll the ball to him out at the three-point line in a pickup game, he can go get you a bucket in the most diverse way. He's got great ball handling. He can shoot from all over the court. He can drive. He can post up. He has a little Jordan fadeaway. That's the best player. And of course... One, there's so many other things happening in a basketball game. And two, the actual effectiveness of that does not usurp just dunking the ball into the basket every time. So I have an example I always use is Shaq who never needed to shoot outside 10 feet in his whole life, uh, because of the seven foot one and 300 pounds and incredible. Other than, athlete. He,
0: other than when he, unfortunately had to take free throws, but <laughs> that's yes. Yes. That's a
1: great point. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that makes the point he 50% free throw shooter, um, which is, which is not good. He was much better shooting it near the basket than he was getting to the free throw line, which is rare for most players, by the way, most players, a free throw is the most valuable shot you can take. Um, where was I? So there's Shaq on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum is a player named Earl Boykins, who was about five foot five tops. Maybe he was a couple pair of socks on. He was five foot five and he had an NBA career. Um, Muggsy Bogues is a similar example, but I actually think Earl, Earl Boykins was a more offensively centric player than Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy was about five, three as well. These are the shortest players to ever play. And Earl Boykins, like his shooting skill from all over the court and his ball handling and just change of directions to be able to do this in the NBA for years against players who are six, three, six, seven, seven feet tall is extraordinary. So the ball skills, the one-on-one skills that Earl Boykins has traditionally are on the extreme end of the all-time spectrum. He's just not a great player or known as a great player because he was so small. Shaq on the other hand has almost none of those and the question is, like, who's better, Shaq or Earl Boykins? And the answer is, turns out dunking the ball into the basket is really, really good. And Shaq is, like, one of the best players of all time. And uh, Earl Boykins is not even necessarily a player who would start on a lot of teams.
0: Well, let's uh, – okay, I'm interested in – let's talk, again, topical sort of stuff here. So prospect evaluation. So you've been you've been talking about this too. And, of course, when we talk with uh, Wemby coming into the NBA, seven – three, seven, two. I never really they know. They lot. got the shoes. Yeah. Can I, they, they, they do like, the, <laughs> they're doing like the dating profile thing where they have their shoes on when they're, when they got their heights. <laughs> so, so in football, they don't, I've, I've used football for many
1: years. They don't tell you the guy's heights in cleats. If, if yeah. you've never been down on the sidelines or played football, um, players wear cleats and they wear helmets and they yeah. look like giant aliens. When you are down there, like a six, six offensive lineman, in that outfit is like seven feet tall, but they don't list them as seven feet tall because the rest of us actually talk about height as I know it's groundbreaking, Kevin. It's how tall you are when you're where your head and your feet are measured. Uh, in basketball, they're like we got to use the shoes to make everyone taller. That's <laughs> so Wemby is like at least seven three barefoot, and uh, we got a shoe height going right now of about seven five.
0: Yeah, but what what I think is interesting though, and this is maybe this is a lowering your like downside or variance and obviously he is extremely skilled but even we go back to someone like uh Deandre Ayton going going number number one overall there still is like a pretty heavy bias i would say in prospect evaluation towards the taller player despite the fact that i know we have Jokic now and you know Embiid playing well and other things but it kind of became a very like wing centric type of League, and definitely, like if you found a player to fill that role, there was even some analytical findings. I think it was five thirty eight. different metrics kind of gave less credit to a great center than versus a great wing because of this like replacement value and how many of a team need for them so did you do you think it's right though, to still say we got to value this this height at least when we're talking about prospects coming in because you're like you can't teach height. It gives you some sort of baseline to do off everything. Or do you think there's maybe even a mistake and more teams should just be firing off shots at guys who could could end up being failing at wing because of the value of the position and relative to others now.
1: Well, so I don't know if anyone loves height more than me. Um, <laughs> if you look at all the players who I think have the best careers, almost all of them are tall. So height is a huge deal. Height matters in basketball Uh, Victor Wembanyama has a teammate who was drafted seventh in the draft. He's an 18 year old kid and he had a meteoric rise up the draft and he put out a video measuring himself. And when I saw that tape measure, Kevin at six, six and a half, I mean, I let out an audible yelp. (laughs) I was like, yes, yes. He's extremely tall. He has the perfect Parisian Pippin build. This is fantastic. Um, Scott, Scotty Pippen for. For the football audience, um, Th- thanks for thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I <think laughs> so, so I think they're going to get that one. But and yeah. his and his name is B- uh, Bilal Kulabali. Uh, anyway, height is huge. What I was getting at in that video, and it's very difficult to title when you have only a you have a little character limit and a short time. We had so many other different titles for that video. Um, the idea is big men who are these great prospects have almost always been considered the greatest prospects because as they come along in their formative years, their size gives them dominance on both ends of the court because the game used to be played much closer to the basket and it used to, in a sense, be a post-centric type of game. Uh, the league has done things and, and uh, with the rules, the three-point line, the, the style of play to empower perimeter players more I think perimeter players have, to some degree, always had an edge on offense because they have the ball a lot and they give a ton back on defense because big people are tall and can block your shot and take up more space defensively. Uh, So being tall was always like this huge deal. But when you go back and you look at all the mega prospects, and we did it on a Thinking Basketball podcast recently, almost every single one is a big man. And the difference between now and then is that the big men coming along don't play like that. So you have an increased skill burden. And that's the part where being big isn't enough. So people are really excited about Wembenyama's ability to ball handle and shoot for his size. But if you don't actually have the accompanying skill, meaning you can't actually get to the basket, you can't shoot very well, so on and so forth, um, then it doesn't do you any good. So compare that to all the other great young big men that came into the league. You weren't going, oh boy, Duncan is dusting people in the post. I wonder if he's going to start missing his hook shot in the NBA, right? It's a totally different thing. And that's where I think it's changed a little. Um, The defensive side is still very much there. And in Wemby's case, he's an extraordinary defender already. But you mentioned Jokic. We also have Joel Embiid. These are Giannis Antetokounmpo. Big men are still dominating the game. They're just doing it differently. So they mix in a post game with a mid-range game with incredible shooting. I mean, both of those guys are great shooters. The skill and touch that they have from all over the court. Uh, I looked at my database yesterday for an upcoming project. In the last 10 years, no one has shot better from the mid-range than Nikola Jokic did in 2023. He made 61% of his mid-range shots. So the skill that these guys have today, ball handling and running pick and roll and everything included, is a very different thing than when Tim Duncan, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, on and on and on, even Ralph Sampson, on and on and on, all these legendary big men in the NBA, those guys were playing in the post. So it was a different the size value translation
0: was different to me. Do you think there could have even been a bit of a false signal of, um, lower value for big men because there wasn't maybe, uh, understanding when these guys are young that they really have to be these completely skilled players. I mean, let's face it. If you're really, really tall and you're playing basketball, um, Worrying about three point shots is maybe not something you would naturally do until you understand that it's you actually it doesn't matter how tall you are. You have to worry about this eventually. And Are we seeing maybe that rebound now because you have players coming out who have understood since they were you know, 10 years old that they have to be able to handle the ball and shoot three pointers and everything else where that may not have been the case, you know, uh, 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago or something like that. You had more players who have been entering who didn't have that skill development.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. Because what incentive do you have as a big man to go shoot a shot that the whole league considered inefficient? Right. This is the. I mean, it's always the elephant. Well, you're in probably the room.
0: hurting your results for winning games when you're a kid too, if you're doing that rather than right. just being tall and going at yeah. it scoring.
1: But it's like it's like if you were a 35 percent three point shooter in the old days. League average is 35, 36 percent now. Uh, and that league average only includes the players that shoot three. Hey everybody, this so was a free above version average, above of a
0: paid but subscriber podcast at unexpectedpoints.substack.com. And kid, if you cannot afford a subscription at this average, point, um, let me know. Either shoot me an email at unexpectedpts at gmail.com, send me a note or leave a comment on the Substack, or hit me up on Twitter. At Kevin Cole, triple underscore. Let me know that you're experiencing some you know, financial hardship at this point. I will give you a no questions asked six month subscription to the pod. You can get these premium podcasts and all of my other premium content. Thank you so much for listening and more content coming your way next week.